Friends, welcome back to another episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. And this week, Ryan is so excited that he cannot wait for me to start the episode. He just jumps straight into it. Oh, but it's fun, so we leave it. We talk about a couple of different things this week, including how the Syrophoenician women looks a lot like the Old Testament Jacob and is an interesting paragon of faith. We also give Jesus a fun, accurate, and tiny bit irreverent nickname. You saw it in the title of this episode, Jesus, the Space Invader. He has a really fascinating encounter with this deaf and this mute man that we didn't get to in the weekend service, so we have a great discussion around that. So stay tuned for those two tidbits and more in our conversation this week on Just Follow Jesus. Let's pray and uh, let me pray for us, would you? Heavenly Father, we are, we're just grateful and privileged to get to have, um, this 90 minutes, two hours, once a week to just just sit and to marinate, to steep, as Ryan said this weekend, further in your word and to reflect with an open mind and an open heart, um, to listen, to strain our ears, to hear what it is that you have to say to us, um, as individual men and as disciples of yours, um, but you have to say to your church, this specific Jesus community here in North Coast Calvary Chapel, we just thank you for um, this this tribe of people, and we we praise you for the work that you're doing in and through them. Um, we just invite you into this conversation, and as we do each week, just confess that you know more than we do what your people are hungry to hear and what will nourish nourish them and what will provoke them to greater faith. So we just yield our agendas and speak to our minds and to our hearts and may this conversation be something that gives you great glory and honor. Uh, that's our, our wish and our desire. And just ask that you too, you, you continue to bless Ryan um, and his leadership of our church and his study of uh, this word that you would give him the wisdom and the discernment to glean from the richness of scripture, uh, each specific message that you would have for us, um, your people pray for, pray, pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I did throw it. Did you hear my Genesis, uh, the new Israel? No. Did you not say, I don't think you said that in the second service. Are you talking about wrestling with God and Jacob? You might've, in one year out the other, I've been known to do that. <laughs> kind of inspired me. It's one of those things that I just didn't normally put into the message. Yeah. I'm probably, my fascination is probably more with spiritual theology, like, like spirituality. Uh-huh. I know that, like all my reading. And so, although I'm fascinated by all theology, that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. And you'll always see that's more I lean. I lean into the dynamics of the spiritual life. And, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I, I just loved, it's such a perfect illustration is she is the new Israel. Mm. And I guess I hit it more in the first service. I can't remember which one I hit. Yeah. It. I didn't even, I didn't get it to it in the evening service because I ended up for some reason to, talking about illustrating the debt, that God doesn't lead us into dead ends um, to destroy us, but to deliver us. Because that's mm. what she's in, apparently. She's in a type of dead end with mm. Jesus. And mm-hmm. 
And that's what God does with the Israelites at the Red Sea. And it wasn't to destroy them. It was to deliver them. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to illustrate that God brings us into these problems. He presents problems to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not to tempt us and it's not to destroy us. It, it is to call out our faith. Yeah. That is how God works. And he, I illustrate that in, like, with Jairus and the death. And mm. I tried to illustrate it. But uh, the best example is Jacob wrestling with God. It is mm-hmm. like she is Jacob wrestling. She is the new oh, Israel dude, in the I covenant. I love that. It's the new Israel. The yeah. new Israel is, are those not defined by, by their ethnicity, but in circumcision, but, but defined by faith. Mm-hmm. And that for everyone who believes in Jesus, they are a son and daughter of God. Um, Ephesians, I think it's a, yeah. So anyways. Dude, that is so perfect. I, absolutely. But I is- did, I just, it probably <laughs> fell by the wayside. <laughs> because I'm looking at the room and I'm feeling the room and I start to get this feeling, okay, eyes are starting to roll back and I'm like, <laughs> I, need to, I need to shift gears and get their attention. And so I don't generally in those moments. So you throw out, you throw out that gem? I Come think on. what I did was in that moment I went to, I went to something and for some reason I didn't hit the, the Jacob wrestling thing. Well, dude, I mean, I didn't, you know, formally launch us into this episode, but it's been recording. And so um, if you're still listening, guys, we're, we're going to keep that part. <laughs> <laughs> she is okay. the definition. I mean, Israel to wrestle with God, right? The, the mark of a faithful person in scripture and a faithful people are basically just us stubborn ones who in the face of life's challenges um, heartaches uh, are those that refuse to give up wrestling um, with the faith in a God who is present, active for our healing good, who's mm. who's bent on our liberation. Um, and on our blessing. Yes, and on our blessing. I mean, that's what Jacob says. I will not let you go until you bless me. Mm-hmm. That's faith that at the heart of God is the desire to bless us. And this woman is like, I'm not leaving until you bless me. Dude. And it's like, that's the kind of faith that God's trying to mature in us through mm-hmm. these struggles in life, that he is the God who wants to bless us. Mm. But we have to kind of overcome the, all the barriers and resistances to that trust. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said too, just about he leads them to the Red Sea. So God isn't a God who leads us into cul-de-sacs um, for cruelty's sake, but he does it to... Well, I, I I hear you saying he does it to cultivate in us faith. Yeah. I, I'd suggest that one of the big things he also does that is to expose the other gods that we have faith in already that are insufficient. Yeah, well, yeah that would be a way of growing our faith is by like exposing the fraudulence. Yeah. And emptiness of our false gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, I know that even... That's good. Um, I like that. I mean, you think about the example of, of Israel there in the Exodus. I mean, man, they're liberated finally from what, 300, 500 years of, of captivity and, and slavery in Egypt. And it's only, uh, I mean, it feels like a couple of days out in the wilderness and they're already longing for, they're idolizing um, the the old times. Oh gosh, why couldn't we just go back to, to being in Egypt where at least we knew everything was familiar. We kind of knew the rhythms we had, we had our work and, but we had our homes, we had our, our meals, you know, and that is, that's more compelling than the, the fear that we're 
facing right now as God stretching our faith. Yeah. Dude, that's something that I can connect to. Come on. I got to tell you, um, so we'll, we'll take a little bit of a, a left shift for this podcast. Um, I'm going to get a little bit personal and vulnerable. I was mentioning to you beforehand that uh, right before Kelly and I listened to this podcast, we were both just being really honest with one another and and sharing how both of us have been going through a season where it feels um, like God is very much hidden and where mm-hmm. we long for and have been crying out for a sense mm-hmm. of his nearness, his love, uh, his healing touch his deliverance from what feels oftentimes very much like persecution um, and, and and not seeming to get an answer to those prayers. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I, I obviously just took this, uh, this big life shift and I left being on staff here where I've been for seven years it had become, um, become more than a job had become a, you know, a family, a community, and mm. so much of my faith was—I mean—has been grown and stretched. I've shared about that a couple of different times on this podcast. Um, but this last summer, when we were really praying and trying to discern this next season and what God's will was for for me and my vocation and this opportunity with nations that's been in front of me, man, it was one of the most powerful seasons of uh, of spiritual experience that I've ever had. I mean. It was, it was incredible, man. This, the palpable sense of God's nearness, his mm. love for me, the different ways that he was speaking to me, um, this, this unshakable conviction that he, he loved me. He had a plan and a purpose for me and that he was, um, using me to, to encourage other people to speak into their lives. It was just, man, it was, it was amazing. I mean, <laughs> I was like on cloud nine, dude. And I was like, yes, this is the sort of, this is what my heart longs for. Oh my gosh. If I, I could do anything feeling that way. And, um, and it is so the opposite now. So just, you know, it's like fast forward three or four months and I'm in a completely different place where I'm at this new role in nations. And it is very much feels like, um, God is hidden. And that terrifies me because I'm in over my head in a, in a, in a real way where, you know, this is a job that I'm, I'm learning. Um, and ultimately I can't just manufacture the stories or the writers or, you know, we don't, we're, we're taking this gamble. We're trying to build this media company that's based off of, uh, our conviction that God is doing something in the world in, in broken places. Um, and that there's this good news, these incredible stories of what God is doing in his actively present in the world. And, um, you know, I'm praying every day over there to, to feel God, to sense his nearness. And he feels incredibly hidden. And one of the things that that's exposed is exposed. Uh, well, one, it's made me grateful for our, our church and for so many of the, so much of the, the friends and the mentors and just the spiritual community. Mm. Um, cause both Kelly and I have all sorts of people that we, you know, we've been able to share this journey that we've been on and asked for, you know, prayer, support, encouragement, and have gotten it. So that that's made us incredibly grateful, but it's also made me realize how privileged I was getting to work on staff here. Um, you, you know, you're around people whose lives are marked by pretty radical faith. 
I mean, they've given their lives to this and, um, I'm not sure quite where I was going with. Well, it makes sense. The thing that grabs my attention is how stepping out into this new level of responsibility, this new venture is kind of something you've always wanted. And yet it's also now creating this sense of hiddenness with God because of the fact that you're feeling kind of in over your head. Yes. And there's such a great parallel to that in all and throughout the gospel of Mark. Like there's a, Jesus goes with the disciples onto the sea and he's with them in the boat. Mm. And then the next time he sends them out, he's not with them. And they're up against the storm again. And yet he's, Mark lets us know that he is watching them, but from their experience in the sea, he is gone, Mm -hmm. absent, hidden, and completely uninvolved. And he's not. And then he comes to them. And in a way, the greater the hiddenness, the greater the revelation, because in that moment, he comes walking on the water to them Mm. and reveals himself in a greater way than he did the first time. And that hiddenness theme is all throughout Mark, where these experiences where we feel we come up short, where we don't have what it takes. And I I think you were saying this earlier, because in those moments, it's exposing our false gods, Mm -hmm. our false idols, our self, our self-reliance, the trust in the God that we trust in ourself, our ability, our intelligence, our um, cleverness, our ingenuity, our creativity, those are gifts from God, but they are not God. Mm. And we're in a place where, um, in over our head, we can't rely on those the mm-hmm. same way. And it creates an opportunity to trust God all over again at a deeper level. But the story with the woman is so pointed because... At the heart of it, I think we feel that these moments of God's hiddenness are cruel and unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. And that is what this sto- moment with this woman is. Almost more than any other moment, except for maybe Jairus, it is cruel and unusual punishment, what he says. And is that because that's where he wants it to end with her? And I think as we see continuing time and time again, it's not the dead end mm. for her. He brings her to a dead end to show her that faith in him is always a breakthrough. Mm. And it's only just the beginning. And Jesus is constantly presenting people with problems that on the surface appears though they're it's over. It's done. And Jesus is only presenting an opportunity for their faith to be strengthened, to persevere, to grab a hold of him and the goodness of his intention, the greatness of his power and um, the depth of his provision and love for us. And that's what's so moving about the story. Mm-hmm. It touches on, I think, some of the core experiences we have with God's hiddenness. Mm-hmm. It does. And one thing that, I mean, we've talked about her as this paragon of virtue, um, of this persevering faith, the new Israel. And this scene between them speaks to our culture of offense and victimhood really deeply. I look at this woman and she has every right to be offended. You know, I mean, yeah, Jesus's response to her is scandalous in a lot of ways. It, as you mentioned, it's probably one of the, the thorniest uh, examples of, or like it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus, man, why are you, why are you acting like this? Why did you have to say that? That feels really uncomfortable. Um, and 
she refuses to get offended. And I just wonder, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in her shoes. Would I have, uh, like how offendable am I? How often do I take offense when, uh, when life or different people or circumstances, um, threaten me or my sense of self-worth? I mean, man, I am not, I'm definitely not to her caliber. She's just utterly unflappable, which is astounding to me. Yeah, and partly another aspect of her faith that we didn't get into is the other-centeredness of her faith. Mm. Her faith is for her daughter. Yeah. And it really does show the heart of Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus and all that he's doing is for his Father's glory and for the sake of God's love toward us. Mm. It isn't for his own glory. In that moment, she's not snagged by her own ego whether it would have enraged her or crushed her feelings, right? To, either way, it wasn't about her. Mm. And, be, and that's because it was about her daughter. And I think it kind of is a testimony to the freedom of living sacrificially, sacrificial uh, lives of sacrificial love, mm-hmm. L- lives that are other centered, that are devoted to loving others in the name of Jesus Versus constantly looking to protect, defend, and preserve ourselves. Yes. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not, I don't think that means we just go off and ignore ourselves in some kind of unaware giving away that in the end just breaks us down in some unhealthy way. But I think there's an over rotation to where we're just too so we can be too self preoccupied. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's a beauty to her humility, but her humility is strengthened by her love for her daughter. Yeah. And by her faith in Jesus's goodness, it's like these two things, her love for her daughter and her faith in the goodness of Jesus. Because if you have one without the other, it's just not quite enough. Mm -hmm. If you trust in Jesus's goodness, but you don't have love for others, then you're missing something. If you have a love for others, but you don't trust in God's goodness, then you become maybe like a kind of a liberal social activism. Mm -hmm. It's all about meeting people's needs, but you don't ultimately have faith that that provision is going to come from God. Mm-hmm. And then eventually that will become self-centered mm. because if you're not drawing on God's resources, you're drawing on your own. Mm-hmm. And then that's a part, that's a problem. Mm. Oh, I think that's a, a beautiful nuance there. Just, uh, yeah, the other centered nature of her faith. And man, I wish to, I wish we could talk to her after yeah. this I wish there was a follow-up. Get her in here and interview her. Yeah, let's get Yeah, totally. (laughs) All right. So tell us, (laughs) how was your life? What what was your faith? I mean, did she become a a follower of Jesus after that? Mm. You know? um, There's a woman I know like that. I didn't get to reference her. She's a social activist. Uh, She really advocates for uh, people in her country who are immigrants. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexa Salvatierrez wrote a great book on, on faith-based, um, I can't remember the title of it. At any rate, um, what I loved about her, she's deep, you know, she's a, a bit, she's a total Jesus follower, but the way that she pursues God's compassion and God's justice for the marginalized in our country is with such a spirit of both bold, fierce boldness and just, as you put it, unflappable humility. Mm. She, she's not one of those angry activists. Yeah. There's like a tenderness and a gentleness. And 
you just always feel her love for the people that she's contending with for the sake of the other people. Mm. Like when she goes before um, uh, people in positions of influence and power, it's never with like this angry embittered spirit. Mm-hmm. I asked her one time, like, how are you so joyful? And her answer was, it's all about love. And she just had this profound, I can't remember how she put it, but just when it's about love, it's, it's, it, it, it there's, there's no, there's, there's joy and there's no need to let bitterness in. And she's, I just don't believe by being fueled by bitterness mm-hmm. or anger. And I think that's a profound insight for us today. Yeah, man. May there be more like her. Yeah. I wish I could off the cuff just say more about her, but at any rate, Hmm. she's an example of that kind of a person. Well, I'd love to move and talk about the second half of this passage, because that's not something that at least the 1045, which is what I listened to, you didn't get a chance to talk about this particularly strange interaction that we have after the Syrophoenician woman where Jesus um, moves on to kind of the next, the next scene, the next part of the town, he's in the Decapolis and uh, the crowds, once again, they, they find him out. He's not able to stay hidden and they bring him this deaf and is he dumb as well? Deaf and slightly mute. Okay. Deaf and slightly mute. Um, he, uh, yeah. So somebody notably who has not heard about Jesus because he can't. So I'd love for you to, what, what do you think, what do you see is going on here? I mean, there's, it's strange and kind of uncomfortable. I mean, Jesus sticks his fingers in his ears. He touches his tongue. He spits. There's a whole lot of visceral physicality that's going on here. You just nailed it. I love the way you framed it. Here's a guy who has not heard of Jesus. And that's a perfect metaphor for people today who just have not heard of him by, you know, like uh, spiritually. Mm. But literally, physically, this guy could not hear about Jesus, right? So um, it's a great metaphor. Gosh, I hadn't thought of it quite that at that level. But um, yeah, you know, in the original role that it played in the message from the weekend was the, in relationship to the hiddenness mm. concept was that God is hidden to us and, and God uses that hiddenness to draw out persevering faith and to draw out personal faith. Mm. And, um, and I, and I see that in the passage with this man, because there's six things that Jesus does with this person, takes him aside. Well, number one, number two, puts fingers in his ears. He spits. It's not really clear where he spits. Then Jesus touches his tongue. I mean, (laughs) what's up with that? Talk about a space invader. I mean, he's all up in this guy's business. You know, he's like up in his Jesus, the space invader. (laughs) He's just a little too close for comfort. Then he sighs. And then he, at the end, he speaks, right? Now that's Mm. interesting that it's the, this one of the only accounts in the gospel of Mark, one of the few where he, we have the Aramaic, Mm -hmm. presumably the word that Jesus spoke, ephatha, right? Aramaic is what Jesus would have been speaking and it's preserved. It's fascinating that Mark preserved it here in this moment. All of that, I think, speaks of the intimacy and personalness of this encounter. And it starts in its frame when Jesus takes him from the crowd. It says here that he took him aside away from the crowd. And that sets, that creates the setting of this whole encounter between Jesus and this person. Mm. And then it goes into an even more kind of, you know, personal, intimate encounter. 
where he's touching the man. And at the, you know, he's like touching, you know, putting his fingers in his ears, touching his tongue. And so why does he do all this? There's a lot of theories. And the one that really resonates with me is everything that he is doing is something that could have been recognizable to somebody who was deaf. Mm. So Jesus doesn't talk to him at first. Notice he doesn't say anything to the end. But at first, he, what he does are things that this person as a deaf person could have observed. Mm. Even the sign, like the putting his head back and the expanding of his chest, you can see it in someone when they do it. You know, mm-hmm. you can just kind of see them doing yeah. it all. And I think what Jesus is doing is like a type of sign language of what he's doing. I'm going to heal you. And a way of communicating with the person. I want to heal you. And I think what I love about it is it is such a personal encounter. And the way that I think the way it ties to the hiddenness theme is, well, to be frank, I think, well, I was talking to a guy who's not a believer, who was not a believer and just became a Christian through Alpha. And we were on a walk and I was hearing his whole story, how he came to faith. And as he was sharing his story, it just started to remind me of this encounter. He was sharing with me how his wife was inviting him to church. He was not a believer, but his wife was inviting him. And he's like, you know, honestly, I just kind of never felt like I had to let it get personal. This is how he started to talk. And my, it was sort of my wife's thing. She would invite me. I would come and just be like, ah, oh, and I just kind of hated it. It was just sort of her thing. And just the whole thing, God just felt so distant to me and it just felt so unreal to me. So just, you know, in our language for today, yeah, God felt hidden to him. Mm. And I go, that reminds me of the story of the man who was deaf and mute. And I started telling him the story how Jesus took him aside. And it was when it got personal that the man was healed of his deafness and could hear Jesus, meaning we could hear God and God is no longer hidden. And he goes, that's just how it was with me. Mm. My wife was sort of like this barrier between me and God. I was kind of like hiding behind my wife from God. And it was her thing. But then he started to share how there came a a point at which he realized he needed to let it get personal. And that he needed to make a personal search with God. And what he did was, it wasn't like Jesus touching his tongue and putting his fingers in his ears. His way of getting personal was... He was listening to um, someone, a preacher, give a challenge to go through the whole New Testament. So he started going through the whole New Testament himself personally and started listening to the New Testament. And as he listened to the New Testament, um, halfway through, I think, it just all started to make sense to him. Mm. But up to that point, he hadn't been willing because he was kind of hiding behind his wife. And I think we do that at times. We are... There are ways in which we are afraid, perhaps, we resist allowing things to get personal with God, and that keeps God hidden from us. And what I love about it is that the hiddenness for this deaf man is what draws him into this really personal encounter mm-hmm. with Jesus, mm-hmm. where Jesus um, interacts with him in such a wonderful way. And so that that's, I think, an, an interesting dynamic in our lives with God is that I think God is constantly inviting us into deeper and more personal encounters with him. But for people who are not believers, who are approaching God, I think there's a challenge of allowing it to get personal with them. Personal with 
the areas of their doubts, the, the areas of their lifestyle choices that, a li- that following Jesus is offensive to or creates resistance with and conflict. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know what that might be. For me, I know what it was for me when I was a non-believer. Uh, I just couldn't imagine giving up my party life. It just mm-hmm. felt like, what, really? Just sit around and read the Bible? That just seems so boring. <laughs> and uh, it, it felt like my friend who had become a Christian was no longer kind of participating in that party life with me. And I just couldn't imagine that God was so good that he'd be worth giving that up. Mm. It was hard to let God creep into my personal life in that way. And then I made a wager with God. And I said, God, if you're better than hooking up with girls and partying, then I'll follow you. That was my wager with God. Mm. If you're better than that, I'll follow you. But if you're not, I just can't do it. And it was letting God into my personal life like that, that that was actually the open door that resulted in me coming to faith. It was like, okay, God, I'm willing to let you in. Help me. Show me that you're better. And I didn't, it was like a real sincere desire. Like, God, are you really better than that? Because my friend's joy in the Lord was greater than my joy. And so I'm like, okay, maybe God, you're really better than that. Mm. Yeah, I think that that is, I think all of us uh, at one time or another, and perhaps on a pretty consistent basis, we, we develop these rhythms and these patterns where we drift or we let, we let things come between us and God personally. And we can, as you said, just start relying on the faith of other people whether that be a wife or, um, I mean, oftentimes, frankly, one of the biggest things that often happens is, um, we rely on the faith of our pastor. So I'm kind of curious to hear you reflect on that. I mean, that's something that I know it's a temptation for all of us. We'd like to associate ourselves symbolically with, with leaders and with leadership. It's, I mean, it's not, this is a pretty human thing. Um, and, so how do you navigate that tension with, um, I mean, do you ever get that sense from people when you are, are meeting with them um, that they're kind of living vicariously through you? Um, sure. I mean, maybe the, there's a sense of vicarious living by, hey, if I've come to church, I've listened to the pastor and I agree with him, then that's the same as repenting and believing, mm. which always result in obedience and following. Um, that's probably why I try to lean hard into really practical exercises of application. And I, I also try to really highlight people's examples from our community mm-hmm. in the message. That's you know, like that one week where I just got people up on stage to share, mm-hmm. to try to pro- provoke a, a holy jealousy. Mm-hmm. Like, look yeah. what God's doing in their life. I want some of that kind of a thing. Um. But yeah, I think that's, and I think that's possible for all of us. I think we can live vicariously through the Bible. We read it, we agree with it, and we think that's enough. And we allow it to be a buffer between us and the, the, the areas where God wants to personally interact with our life, where he wants to get into our life to provoke us, to draw us into personal encounter with him and the way that we trust him with our finances and the ways that we trust him with our sexuality, mm. with our deepest desires, our greatest 
and most um, coveted dreams, uh, our greatest longings, the way that we open up and get personal with God about our deepest pains and wounds and brokenness. There are ways in which we create buffers between us and God. And what is so wonderful about this passage is the uncomfortable nature of the intimacy of it. It's on par with the almost offensiveness of his interaction with the woman. Yeah. You could say it's corollary. You're like, okay, so you've got the woman. Now, does it get any more offensive than this? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think in Mark, this is as, almost as offensive as it gets. And yet with the, with the man, it's almost as intimate as you, as he gets in mm-hmm. all the gospel. And I think that Jesus is drawing us out and provoking us and uh, through his hiddenness. And I think I see that in the way that we go through seasons where brokenness and pain starts to take over our life. Mm. And really, what is that brokenness doing? It's rising up from within us. It's always been there. It's mm-hmm. rising up from within us. And when it rises up, it starts to create a sense of God's hiddenness from us. We st- Most people, when they're going through a felt experience of brokenness, start to feel like, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? And I think God allows those, he uses those seasons in our life, those moments to draw us out, to provoke us, to allow God to get more personal with us in some area of our life that Mm -hmm. we have been keeping him at distance. And sometimes the very things that have brought us to God can become that barrier itself. In this case, these people have brought him to Jesus and we need that. We need people in our life to bring us to him. However, sometimes we can allow those things, those people to become a barrier for us, a buffer. And so Jesus pulls them aside. And I, I just think it's fascinating um, all the ways in which Jesus, like a skilled surgeon, knows how to just to, to get into our life to help free us. I don't know. He's, I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but he just knows it, there's no formula with him. He just is always at work to draw us out of our hiding and into the open with him. And man, sometimes that's uncomfortable. Yeah, you're right. And that maybe that's what's, that is what's familiar with both stories as well. Mm. Because if I were in a weekend service and I were to interact with people that personally, it creates tension in the room. Oh yeah. Like, right. Like if I kind of got off the stage and, you know, interact with someone, it would be like, oh, like that. It would be like, oh my gosh, I'm on the spot. It just, just uh, Jesus is just uh, so personal like that. Um, so yeah, I think he, I think it's through um, persevering faith and drawing us into deeper waters of being personal with him that God, um, he uses that, his, that hiddenness experience with him to draw us out to persevere and to get more personal with him. Mm. Ryan, I think one of the last things I'd love to hear you address is, and you, you mentioned it briefly in your message, but uh, she's explicitly named as a Syrophoenician woman. She's not a Jew. Um, and his response to her is, I mean, it sets up this tension of the privileged versus the non-privileged, the insider versus the outsider. Um, and yet he, he, he doesn't take the disciples 
requests seriously to like basically ignore her. Um, but instead he engages with her and not only that, but he ultimately ends up blessing her. And then he goes on to have this experience with, or this encounter with the, the deaf man and he heals him. And this all happens in a context that is, um, it's a mixed setting. There's, there's, it's not just to the Jews. Um, although that seems to be his, his primary audience and the people that he engages with the most intimately, given the fact that all the, the disciples are Jewish and whatnot. So I'd love to hear you speak to, to some of that tension a little bit. Yeah. Mark has a, he has this interesting approach to his narrative, like where he states things very explicitly and then he allows you to find it in his story. I'll give you an example, and then we'll talk about the Gentile factor. He opens his gospel with all this talk about Satan. And you see bits of Satan, but he kind of starts to fade a little bit. Um, you hear about demonic spirits, of course, but Satan himself. And then secondly, the gospel, the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, the gospel. Uh, you don't hear Jesus constantly talking about the, quote, good news, and yet he is constantly, in everything that he is doing, he is communicating it. He's revealing it through his actions and his words. I think similarly in this moment, Mark is sort of crossing a threshold for us into a series of moments where Jesus is going to interact with Gentiles. So it starts with the woman, and he's very explicit about it. She's Greek, which means probably that she speaks Greek, mm -hmm. but uh, she's born in Syria, Phoenicia. So he's letting us know very explicitly that she's a Gentile. And as I highlighted in the, in the message, from a region that had a history of violent hostility with the Jews. And then Jesus, in the next passage with the deaf and mute man, it says, travels down ultimately to the Decapolis on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is a sort of a Hellenized region with a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And then he feeds the 4,000 in that region. So... All three of these stories, the woman, the deaf and mute man, and the feeding of the 4,000, all take place in this region among um, Gentiles. And I think what's really important about this moment is that Jesus is beginning to signal to us the, 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 the full reach of his compassion. Mm. I think uh, we've seen his compassion in marvelous, spectacular ways, right? We see the first mention of it in the feeding of the 5,000, but we see it displayed towards people who are demonized, right? People that we would have thought would have been unclean and unable to receive that favor from Jesus. How about the bleeding woman mm -hmm. who should not have pushed through the crowd and touched Jesus, and yet he is not made unclean, rather she is made clean mm -hmm. through his, the pow his power and his compassion. He calls her out, restores her as daughter, we see Jesus's compassion time and time again, reaching out to the leper, to the sinners, Levi and his tax collector friends over and over and over again. But all of these people are Jews. Hmm. Now here, it shifts gears. And this would have been for the disciples, the most controversial turn. Mm -hmm. It was controversial to bring in the tax collectors. Okay, for the Pharisees, we don't know what the disciples thought. They probably were freaked out too. But this moment that he actually even interacts with this woman, that he even talks to her, that he blesses her, and then the cascading interactions with the deaf mute man and the Decapolis and the feeding the 4,000 all is signaling the most radical turn in the first half of Mark. 
the 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 breadth of God's compassion, the reach of God's compassion out to the Gentile world, that God's blessing reaches beyond the Jews. Mm. And that is both scandalous to the Jew and to the disciples. It would have been hard for them to comprehend. I mean, just think of Peter when G- when Jesus shows up to him in Acts and he says, go to Cornelius' home. Do you remember that story? Mm-hmm. He's oh, like, yeah. go to, this is deep into following Jesus, right? This is after the cross, after the resurrection, <laughs> deep into Acts. And he goes, hey, Peter, go to that Gentile guy's house. And he's like, no way, Lord. I would never, I can't do that. And he's like, don't call what I call clean. I mean, unclean, clean. Mm. He even there doesn't quite get it. So certainly he do, they don't get it here. I think it just signals to us where Jesus is going, how reckless, how scandalous, and how great is his love and compassion. Mm-hmm. And the full breadth and reach of his salvation and redemptive purpose. And that takes us into next week. And next week, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what's going on with the feeding of the 4,000 and how it speaks to this moment that we're looking at here and how it reveals the full scope of God's redemptive purpose. Mm. Well, that's, I think it's a powerful place for us to end on because it's a profound invitation to each of us to reassess our own uh, dispositions and our own biases towards who we think um, is in and who we think is out. And also to just to reflect on our own lives. Hey, do, do we, do our lives as Jesus followers reflect that same sort of subversive love towards um, people that are unexpected in yeah. our day and age, That's because right. I mean, depending on depending on your you know your context, um, that could look like any number of things. So we won't try to unpack that here. But it is I feel like that's a, a great invitation for us to wrestle with this next week as we prepare yeah. our hearts for that message. So I think that's a good place to end. And thanks for the sneak peek. <laughs> we'll see Until you next, next week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. For more information about the series or our church, you can visit northcoastcalvarychapel.org. We also still have some copies of a special coffee table quality journal that we designed and put together to accompany this series in the Gospel of Mark. This whole podcast is a resource of North Coast Calvary Chapel. It's produced and directed by Joseph Carlson. The editing has been done by Nate King, and the music is by the one and only Brian McMaster. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.